Well, it's great to see you. We're in the middle of our sermon series, as you just heard a moment ago, Faith That Moves. And we're looking in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, that has a long list of people from the Old Testament. So today we come to a story that I know you've heard of, is really familiar, the Battle of Jericho. And it's Hebrews 11, verse 30. This is what it says. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. That's it. No person, the army, people, short. But in order to understand how the walls fell, what kind of walls they were, where it was, I've got to give you a little update here, and I think a map will help. Because Jericho is in the Middle East, and the Middle East, if you look at that circle there, is captured in that circle by what some people call the Sacred Bridge. It's a place that God carved out for his people, the promised land, that would be a bridge between the three major continents of the world at that time. Africa in the south, Asia, China, and India to the northeast, and to the northwest Europe. It was a place where God said to his people, you be the light, you be my people, as the people of the world come and go. You show them who I am. Of course, the people of Israel were not in Israel as yet. They were given this land as a gift when they came out of Egypt. And uh, the story we'll look at in just a few moments takes place in Jericho, which is right there. It's the doorway to the land right across the Jordan River. Jericho, you can visit today, it's a tell. That's an ancient word for a mound of civilization that's built like a layer cake. It's one of the oldest places on the face of the earth that has human settlement. Scholars say it goes back to about seven or 8,000 B.C. I know that's a long time ago. That would have been on the lowest level of the layer cake. There's a spring there, water. That's what keeps people going, and that's what caused the city to be built there. And through those thousands of years, one generation would live there. They would be invaded. The invaders would knock down the buildings and use that as their basement, right, to build their new buildings on. And so the layer cake rises into this tell. Here's an aerial shot. And you see, that's Jericho? Yeah, it looks kind of small, doesn't it? It's only about 10 acres. It only had, at the, the time in Joshua chapter 6, probably about 2,000 people living there. Jericho had mud brick walls for their homes and businesses. <clears throat> mud brick, because it's so dry there, it only rains once a year, if that, and you could make brick cheaply, and it would last. And you can see some of the layers of the mud brick, right? And that's 
what the Bible describes as the walls that were falling down. Here's an artist's depiction of what it was probably like when Joshua conquered the city. You see at the bottom, there's some stone, like a foundation wall, right? And then a little bit higher, there's the mud brick walls. And then if you go into the center of the circle, the city, there's the higher price real estate, right? The extra protected area, the upper city it was called. And those mud bricks apparently were destroyed as well. Not every mud brick came down, but enough did so the Israelites could conquer the city. One final thing I'll remind you about is that the priests in the story were to blow the ram's horn, the trumpet. The Hebrew word is shofar. Uh, have you ever seen animals with large horns? So you, you take a male sheep, a ram, and remove their horns, and some are real long and squiggly and others are short, hollow them out. And have you ever heard those before, what it might sound like? I think I hear it. Yes, I do. Here he comes. Okay. Good. Come on down. Uh, my grandson, thank you, volunteered to be my helper today. <clears throat> Now, Evan, I would like you to blow it just as loud and long as you can on the count of three, okay? One, two, three. Wow. Yeah. Thanks, bud. Thanks. <laughs> well, we all enjoyed that. I... I have tried. I can hardly make a sound out of those things. So if you play the trumpet or brass, you're, you're a good shofar blower. Now, let me tell you the story of Joshua and the walls of Jericho. It comes out of chapter 6 in the book of Joshua. But before I do that, uh, let me uh, tell you a bigger story. The story in which this story fits. In Genesis chapter 1, God created the world and a garden inside the world. Those humans rebelled because the serpent caused them to be disloyal to their king and creator. And God set out to destroy the serpent with that promise you know of, right? The first gospel. The seed of the woman that is God's promised Messiah, would one day crush the head of that serpent that brought disaster and evil into the universe. That begins the war that continues to this day and that was part of the war in the book of Joshua. The way it went was the seed of the woman becomes the seed of Abraham as God gave to him the promise he would be the father of a nation, that nation would have a land to live in, and they would be the sacred bridge, the light to the nations all around them. 
They're in the book of Exodus. It says they're slaves in Egypt. So God redeems them, makes a covenant with them, and takes them on a march to his promised land. The only problem is that there are people occupying that land. So what God says to Joshua, who has now taken over Moses' leadership, in chapter 6, verse 2, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. The, uh, if you remember the map there, Jericho is right smack in the middle of the land, and God's way of attacking was to divide and conquer. If you hit the middle capital city, they were city-states at that time, then you could go to the south, which is what they did next, conquer those cities, and go to the north and conquer those cities, and the land would be theirs. That's the book of Joshua. But before they went into the land, Joshua sent some spies into the land. Remember that story? You're going to hear more about that next week when we talk about Rahab the harlot. But when we come to this passage, chapter 6, it's amazing the way it starts out. God tells Joshua in verse 2, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. And then God gives instructions on how they're supposed to fight. Now, that's a little backwards, isn't it? Wouldn't you expect God to give the instructions first and then say, all right, go to war, and then say, now I've delivered Jericho into your hands? But it's backwards. The victory is already declared on the front end, but that's God. This is the way he works. This is the way he tells Joshua to have confidence in your attack. Now, when I say attack, I put that in quotations. Here's what it looks like to send in their attack squad. It says, first of all, put a few armed men in the front, and behind them, seven priests. Priests who have those shofars and will be blowing them while they're walking around the city. Then, priests four of them, who carry the Ark of the Covenant. That's the throne of God. And then, some rear guard behind the Ark, and that's it. That's your invasion squad. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes, really. And then, here's the way you do it. You go in, walk around the city, with those people, just a handful of people, right? And the priests with the shofars, seven of them, playing them, blowing them, making that sound you just heard. And no other speaking, not even a whisper from anybody. You do it one day, two, three, four, five, six, and on the seventh, you walk around seven times, shout, and the walls will collapse. Now, I ask, well, that's, that's the invasion force? 
yeah? And you have to do it six days and nothing happens until the seventh? What's that all about? Couldn't God just say, do it one day and the walls will collapse? Well, yeah, but so why seven days? Well, where's the first place you ever heard about seven days, right? This is another way that God is recreating the Garden of Eden for the new people of God in the land of God. It's a fresh start for them. Well, you want to hear how day two went? Verses 12, 13, and 14 say this. Joshua got up early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets, the shofars. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So, on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. Israel's God is marching around the city. He's their real captain. He's their real general. And then on the seventh day, here's what it says in verse 16. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. And we say the walls came tumbling down. Now, what's our verse today? By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. Well, kind of sounds to me like the walls fell because God commanded them to fall. Where's the faith? I know it says, by faith the walls fell, but it's not like the bricks exercise faith, right? Then I got to thinking, so that means that it must have been difficult to do this. And the more I kind of wore their sandals, I thought, yeah, how, how did they have faith to do this, or why did they need it? Well, think about this. They had to believe what God said when he said in verse 2, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. They had to really believe that. Or if they were out there marching this great walled city, they were just prey to an arrow, a rock, an invasion force coming out of the city or something like that. They had to believe that they would win. And they had to obey God's commands to do this. Could I just say, in spite of how ridiculous it sounds? Now, think about it. God says, there's the city. You've sent spies in to reconnoiter and all this stuff, and you find their weak places and all. All right, now, here's the way you're going to attack and invade. These people are going to march around. What? 
that's not how in the ancient world you overcome, you invade cities. They had no tools to build, let's say, tunnels underneath the, the walls or uh, stuff to build ramps up to the wall or maybe ladders to climb over the wall or maybe lo you know, big logs, battering rams to knock the walls down. They had nothing of that. They had their ram's horns and their voices and the sandals on their shoes, and, and they had the ark of God. So they had to trust God by faith. And the Bible doesn't say this, but my imagination goes like this. Probably they heard ridicule coming from inside those walls as the people shouted out stuff. You crazy Israelites, or, you know, what do you think you're doing? And, just to demoralize their spirits. So if it was you walking around there, what, you, how would you have felt? But what kept them going to victory was their faith in God and his promise, his word. And don't forget, this is the generation that was born in the wilderness. Their parents were the ones who came out of Egypt. So they knew when God said to their parents, you know what, I'm fed up with you guys. You won't trust me. I feed you with manna. I brought you out of the Red Sea. You're my people. I've given you a covenant. But you still aren't following me. So you want to go back to Egypt? I won't let you do that but I won't let you go in the promised land. You're going to die of old age here. In 40 years, they wandered in circles, and they died. And their kids saw a God who kept his word, his word of judgment. And this next generation was also the generation that saw the Jordan River dry up so they could walk through it. Just, if we read the record, just a couple of weeks earlier, they saw that miracle happen. And so when God said, I'm going to give this city to you, it's delivered to you, their faith was not a totally blind faith. They were able to look back and say, the God who promised is faithful because we've seen his mighty acts in the past. Now, we have walled cities too. We are in spiritual warfare against those walled cities. Walled cities, anything that keeps you from a closer walk with God. Anything that is set up that hinders your spiritual life. You facing some? <laughs> may, may. Well, that's a silly question. What kind of walled cities are you facing even today? Did you face this past week? Jim talked about putting on your socks. Maybe. But that's not much trouble unless it really is trouble to put on your socks. But there's a whole lot more. Can I just push in and ask a few questions? Uh, the best, closest moments that you can remember with God, are they more 
in your past, let's say in the past year, or are they fresh enough so that you could say, yeah, last week, last month, last spring? What about your patience with your kids or your spouse? or your friends. Would you say that on the meter of patience to impatience, you are more patient now than you were a year ago, or less? What about the use of your time and money on people other than yourself? Would you say that compared to a year ago, you are more generous or less? Now, I'm just asking to diagnose your own life and heart because if you're coming up with questions, uh, sorry, answers to those questions that, that are like, oh, ooh, yeah, well, that doesn't, that doesn't sit well with me. I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to be generous. I'm supposed to be patient. God, you seem far away. Those are walled cities. Those are walled cities that you must attack by faith. And it's not just those kind of personal walled cities. What about what's going on in the world around us, in our land? When you have abortion and the whole industry of abortion that seems like this giant walled city, with no bricks coming out. And praise God for a ministry like Cradle of Hope that we're now supporting. And what about euthanasia? I know you don't hear about it much, but <laughs> we will be hearing about it. We're talking about end of life, mercy killing, from both spectrums. It makes sense that if we as humans our God, so to speak, we can control the beginning of life and the ending of life and everything in between. That's why the transgender movement has gained such traction. Because what is gender? But what we say it is, not what God has said it is. These are walled cities that outside of us seem huge and unconquerable. What about the racial issues, plural? Not just in our country, but all over the world. But especially in our country where we live. All I have to do is say the word race, and suddenly, what's he going to say next? Stress. I've I have a few other words I could say to pile on here. Here's another walled city. What about COVID? Part two. Vaccinations. And then there's another four-letter word that is not often said in church. Mask. Now, we chuckle a little bit, but you all know that's a dead serious issue that as soon as I say that, I'm on this side, and no, I'm on that side, and the sides are like this. How do, we, how do we destroy that walled city of stress and opposition and tension 
inside the family of God. And then, <laughs> added to that, we've got the walled cities that our own hearts create with our own personal issues, our own temptations, our own idols, right? Our imaginations, where I'll just tell you about some of mine. I, I find self-protection is now uppermost in my thinking. And, you know, of course, be, uh, be safe, I know. But, right, there's this, compared to a year ago or two years ago, what, I've got to be safe, which means I can't. Or self-sufficiency. If I have enough, enough toilet paper or, you know, enough, uh, that was round one, but, right? If I have enough whatever, I'm good. Now let's get on with life. Where are other people in that? And then, discontentment. Right? Like, hold it. I thought we were finished with this. And now we're going back to it again? You know, the good old days? And I find myself, oh, if... No, that's a walled city. Now, I know I'm, I'm laying a lot on you this morning, but that's where we are. And as Christians, we, I guess we have two options. We can either say, we can't deny it. You could run away from it and self-isolate and say, I'm not going to be a part of this. I'm just going to wait till things get back to normal. Right? Or you could start Taking your sides, choose your tribe. What's your narrative on this? And what's your opposition to that? And where do you stand on this? And that becomes everything you think of from the moment you wake up to when you go to bed, and you tweet about it, and you see it, and it's on the media, and it's just, you know what I mean? It just, we're on edge. Or we say that this is an unprecedented time in our history, and it's time for Christians not to retreat or not to take sides, but to move in with God's side to say, this is the time for Christians to live their lives in such beauty and power and difference that it becomes attractive for people. That's what I'm calling us to today, to break down the walls that you have built inside your heart and to pray about the other ones that are so huge in our culture. And here's how we do it. Number one, you have to remember that Jesus has already won the war. Just like Joshua was told by God, I have delivered this city into your hands. And by the way, you know what the uh, Hebrew name for Joshua is? Yehoshua. You know what the Hebrew name for Jesus is? Yehoshua. 
Jesus and Joshua, two different languages. One is Hebrew, one is Greek. <laughs> this is a picture for us. This is why it's in the Bible. It's not just cool to talk about and blow shofars. Jesus is our victor. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sin, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Not only when Jesus died, are our sins forgiven, but the powers of evil and darkness are defeated. That's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 6, when we are those who have died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? The fact of our victory is secure, but we still have to fight, but we fight out of an assured conclusion. That's radical, isn't it? But that's what God has done for us. So that's why he, Paul can say in Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. You hear the language of war? Put to death those walled cities in our lives. Actively fight sin. But we do it in a different way. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, could I say, walled cities. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obey Christ. That's where it starts, in our hearts, in our minds, with our words. Our spiritual weapons are prayer. And if you say, prayer? R really? Yes. Then you don't know the power of prayer. And the promises of God in Scripture, the Word of God that's encased in Scripture, and discussion with the people of God fueled by the Spirit in your heart and Scripture. Now, about a month ago, I was made aware that there were two people in our church who were at odds with each other over one of those issues that I introduced that are out there in our culture. And I heard that one of them said, well, I'm not coming back to church here anymore. It was that hurtful, what this other person did and said. So I 
talk to both of them, listen to what they said, what happened, and uh, I asked this question. I said to each of them, are you willing to come and talk to the other person and listen and tell your side of the story? You willing to do that? And I'll be there. And they, they both said yes, and I was so grateful because I thought that took faith to do that. So we met uh, in between a, the first service and the second service. You go first, they did. You go second, they did. And they still disagree, as far as I know, to this day. But they explained what they believed about this particular issue. And then I said, let's pray. Can, can we all pray together? Yeah, we can, we can do that. And each one prayed, and then I prayed. And afterward, the offended person put out their hand to the other person and said, we're together on this. Not on the issue, but we're together in the body of Christ. A walled city just collapsed, and I saw the bricks fall. And they're both worshiping here to this day. Do they agree on that? Well, like I said, I don't, I don't think they agree on it, but that's beside the point. The bigger issue is love and forgiveness and hurt and offense and listening to each other and hearing the other side and knowing that, yeah, okay. So now, from now on, this is what I won't do or won't say. That's huge. That's what the church should be known for. That's what Jesus is known for, redeeming sinful situations. Sure, getting rid of walled cities, but so that you can go in and build a new life. And fighting together is what we do. Not to each other, but we fight together against the forces of wickedness and evil. And we also fight because we belong to another walled city. Hebrews chapter 11 also says about Abraham that he was looking for a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Revelation calls it the new Jerusalem. And it's so worth it. That day is coming and I'm not saying that if you, I don't know, pray seven times, <laughs> your walled city will collapse. Some will never collapse. You will not find victory this side of the eternal city. But that's okay, because you're walking by faith one step at a time, hand in hand with Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray. Thank you for the promise of the new Jerusalem, our Father. 
Son of God, thank you for making the way. Spirit of God, fill us and use us, we pray. May we arise to be your people in this generation. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen.